Glad to have you with us today at the Antioch campus of Blue Valley Baptist Church. And we are thankful for this day where we are able to reflect on all that God is doing in our student ministry. That's what is neat about Senior Sunday. It shows us in ways that we wouldn't see otherwise the impact that student ministry at Blue Valley has had, in part because sometimes you don't see all these kids together, and at other times, because we're a two-campus church, you don't recognize all that God is doing at our other campus in Olathe. So uh, that's, that's exciting. It's been exciting for me uh, in particular, humbling maybe, because these kids who were here when I became pastor were kindergartners <laughs> when, when I became pastor. I, I've told people routinely, I said, there may be nothing more in my life that's made me feel older than Zacchaeus Crockett graduating uh, from high school, because I remember having to get a babysitter for him uh, so that we could talk to his mom and dad about being on staff. The other thing that today gives us an opportunity to do in celebrating student ministry, today marks the one-year anniversary of Micah and Amber Hayes and Charlotte Hayes being here at the Antioch campus. Micah jokingly, I want to stress that, Micah very jokingly said, so what do I get for being here one year? And I said, a hearty applause. Uh, I said, you've got to be here 10 years before you get anything extra. So Micah, one down, nine to go, all right? One down, nine to go. I was 11 years old when the first Star Wars movie came out. 11 years old. So that meant that I was in the target demographic uh, for that movie, and I was over the moon about it. I, I lived out, and getting to go uh, was kind of, uh, anywhere was kind of a, a chore. Uh, but I finally badgered my dad into taking me to see the first Star Wars movie at the West Side Drive-In Tahlequah, Oklahoma. So we drove in the rain, stood, parked on the road forever to get in. And then we put the speaker on the window and, and it was pouring rain. So dad had to leave the windshield wipers on <laughs> so we could see it. And, and, then the, and then the car, the windows would fog up. So he'd have to fire up the, it was, it was a miserable experience for my father. But I was enthralled, and I saw it multiple times, and then before my freshman year in high school, The Empire Strikes Back came out, and then before my senior year in high school, uh, the whatever the third one was called came out. And I enjoyed them all, and uh, one of the things that I found fascinating about it, obviously, was that it was just a good versus evil story. You had somebody like Luke Skywalker, who was really, as far as his destiny went was, was uh, someone at risk. His, his destiny was in question as he battled between the, the good side of the force uh, and, the, and the dark side of the force. And that dark side of the force was personified in this character named Darth Vader. Now, periodically in those first three movies, the, the, the backstory of Darth Vader was hinted at. Uh, we were kind of know, led to know cryptically that he had once been good, but he was seduced uh, by the dark side and then just became this, this evil person that the movies portrayed. It, even when he has what would call, be called a, a deathbed conversion in the final moments of the final movie of those original three, we really don't know the details. It took 16 years after that first movie for George Lucas's prequel to come out. 
where we began to have the gaps filled in and we began to learn that Darth Vader had once been a precocious child named Anakin Skywalker who had been given everything that he needed to be successful, but ultimately a love for uh, those close to him allowed him to be seduced by the dark side of the force and he became Darth Vader. Now, here's why I mention that to you today. I have really come to see the first three chapters of Genesis as something of a prequel to the rest of the Bible because they let us know why things are the way they are. They fill in the gaps for us. So as we read through the rest of the Bible, Genesis 3 provides a compass point for us that helps us understand why the plot of Scripture is going as it does. And so we're going to continue to look at the early chapters of Genesis in this new message series called Bible 101, skipping over Genesis 2, going right to Genesis 3 this morning. So if you would please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Now last week when we began our message series and we talked about Genesis chapter 1, I let you know that there was kind of a wideness in the debate between uh, evangelicals, uh, people who are of the conservative bent in, in the Christian faith. There's kind of a wideness in how they interpret Genesis 1. So on one side you have those who believe it to be literal and it's six literal days and therefore we have a very young earth. And then you have others who believe that uh, Genesis 1 is to be understood as a poem um, and therefore those days can be interpreted metaphorically. And so you can have an old earth. So you have someone like Al Mohler on one side believing in a literal six days and a young earth. And you have someone like Tim Keller on the other side believes that Genesis 1 is a poem and we could have potentially a very old earth. So there's disagreement there. But when you get to Genesis chapter 2 verse 4, you have 100% uniform agreement in historical Christianity. When we get to Genesis chapter 2 verse 4, it is the consensus of Orthodox Christianity that what we have is an historical narrative. We are be being told about an event, events that really happened. So both Al Mohler and Tim Keller agree that when we get to Genesis chapter 3, all of this really happened. Now, at the outset, we can be thrown a little about it because it's, it's got some odd things early on that makes us think, well, maybe we're to interpret this as a, as a metaphor or as a morality tale, but, but I'll show you why we aren't to do that as we read. So look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, the word serpent there is the common word in the language of the author of the book of Genesis for snake. He's just talking about a snake. And he characterizes snakes as I think most of us would characterize a snake. They slither, they hide, they terrify people like me. All right? So he's just talking about a snake. And then he, the snake, said to the woman... Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So you're saying, Derek, are you telling me that biblical biology is that snakes, once upon a time, had a capacity to vocalize? And that is not what we are meant to understand. We are meant to understand that something more sinister is at work. And the understanding is that the creature, the being Satan, has inhabited this common snake 
and is using this snake in its interaction with Adam and Eve to seduce her into believing something that is not true. All right, so keep reading. Verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the tree of the fruit of the garden that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Now the tree she's referring to is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Genesis chapter uh, 2 tells us that there are these two trees, tree of life, tree of knowledge of good and evil. That tree of knowledge of good and evil can't eat from. Neither, she says, shall you touch it, which is not what God had said, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Again, it's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. Now, a lot of of artists, if you look at art that depicts Genesis 3 and theologians for certain, try to account for Satan's presence in the garden and begin to almost read Genesis chapter 3 as the origins of evil. But Genesis chapter 3 does not exist to explain to us the origins of evil. It doesn't say, this is where Satan came from. This is why Satan was there. Genesis chapter 3 does not exist to explain to us the origins of evil. Genesis chapter 3 exists to tell us where sin and guilt came from in the human condition. That's why it exists. And so, rather than lay the blame at Satan's feet, rather than to say, the devil made me do it, Genesis chapter 3 and God himself lays all of the blame for what transpires, the, the, the action that Adam and Eve take at the feet of Adam and Eve. And the effects were immediate. They immediately feel and experience shame, and in a way that all of us can identify with. They recognize their nakedness in relationship to one another, and they try to hide it. But that, that effect of their choice and their action is about to manifest itself in a far more profound way. Look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So now they're not just attempting with leaves to hide from one another. They are attempting with the creation to hide from God. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So now... This shame in how we relate to one another has manifested itself in shame in how we relate to God. And when God calls for Adam and Eve, he is not requesting their location. 
It's important to understand that. He's not requesting their location. He is not seeking information. He's seeking a confession. Where are you in relation to me, Adam? He's seeking a confession. And like confessions can sometimes tend to be early on when we get caught, it's evasive and half-hearted and actually attempts to shift the blame. Adam says, well, you see the woman, and he's actually, in a very subtle way, shifting blame to God. The woman that you gave me. The woman gave me the fruit, and I ate. God doesn't deal with that. He's going to in a minute. Says the woman, what have you done? Well, the snake, the serpent. They're they're willing to admit something's gone wrong, but they're not willing to take ownership of it. They're they're wanting to point to the circumstances. I am the result of God-given circumstances. I really cannot be held accountable to this. But God is going to have nothing of it. And he lays the blame for what they have done squarely at the feet of of Adam and Eve, and then these sad words begin to be pronounced by God. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, there's a painful rhythm to those words that I have just read. There is a rhythm of an immediate consequence and then a long-term consequence for the three parties involved. Something immediate, long-term consequence. Something immediate, long-term consequence. Something immediate, long-term consequence. The immediate price for the serpent's role in this deception is that his status changes. He begins to be an animal. Again, remember, let's not run to what we know about Satan and all of that right now. Let's just, as an animal, he will be consigned to the dust of the ground. That's the immediate aspect. The long-term consequence is a conflict with man. And let me tell you something. As a guy that grew up in the woods in northeastern Oklahoma, there was definite conflict between snake and man in the world in which I lived. All right? So, immediacy, dust, long-term consequence, conflict with man. For the woman, the immediate consequence is pain in childbirth. And the long-term consequence is conflict with men. Now, 
a lot of times this is missed, and part of the reason it's missed is because the, the, the language in which this is written is immediately difficult. But in general, if you'll go to the last part of verse 16, it says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. In general, it is agreed that what is being talked about there is that there will be this constant tension and trying to overpower and subdue one another between man and woman. The war of the sexes finds its roots in chapter 3, verse 16. So, immediate thing, pain in childbirth, long-term consequence, the war of the sexes, conflict with men. And then finally, for the man, for Adam, the immediate consequence is painful labor in doing the vocation that he's called to do, to tilling the ground, to doing what God had called him to do, to tend and take care of the earth. And so there's pain in doing that, and then the conflict is this constant war with the ground. Thorns and thistles try to come up, and you're going to have to labor your entire life in order to be able to overcome that just to get what you need. So as a result of heeding another voice besides God's voice, Everything had become more difficult and tragic for Adam and Eve. And so the tendency for us is to think, well, bummer for those two. I mean, that's too bad. They had everything going for them. Bummer for those two. And then this, look at verse 21. And the Lord made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, behold, man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Uh-oh. Here's the uh-oh. That the consequence of all of this isn't just on Adam and Eve. It's also on their offspring. And the consequence, ultimately, is isolation from God. Eve represents communion and fellowship with God. E or, excuse me, Eden represents communion and fellowship with God. And they are driven from it. So there's isolation from God. So mankind created to commune with God as a result of this decision, as a result of this decision, is now isolated from God. From the Bible's perspective, the length and breadth of human existence is explained by Genesis chapter 3. And that existence can be summed up in one little word. And we know what the word is. It's the word sin. And Genesis 3 really teaches us all we need to know about it. Quickly, let me give you three things that Genesis 3, and the rest of Scripture actually, teaches us about sin. First is important because it's fundamental to our understanding of what's going on. Sin is defined by its essence. Sin is defined by its essence. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, let's go back and look at verse 6 of Genesis 3. And in your mind, ask yourself, when does the sin take place? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who's with her, and he ate. And the tendency is to say, well, the sin, clearly, is when she took of its fruit and ate. And I am telling you that's not the case. 
The sin happens between the comma at the end of the word wise and the white space before the word she. Because ultimately, listen to me, the essence of sin is not an action. The essence of sin is rebellion against God. We could classify everything before the word wise in verse 6 as temptation. She was being tempted. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food. She's under temptation there. She's being enticed to listen to another voice. That's temptation. That's not sin. And that it was a delight to the eyes. She's seeing that this would look to be something good to eat. That's temptation. That's not sin. And then she sees that the tree would be desired to make one wise. That's, that's temptation. That's not sin. But at some point after the comma, she says, you know what? I'm going to do it. And at that point, the taking of the fruit became the after effect. She rebelled in that white space. Adam rebelled in that white space against God. And so the essence of sin is not some action. The essence of sin is rebellion against the voice of God. The rest of Scripture backs this up. I want you to look at uh, Romans chapter 1. You can hold your place in Genesis 3. Let's look at Romans 1. Now, Romans 1 is really something of a companion piece to the first three chapters of Genesis. That's why we looked at it last week, and we are coming back to it again. I want you to listen to how Paul talks about sin from a theological perspective. Not a narrative like Genesis 3, but from a theological perspective. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, and we think there of actions, right? We think of actions. Who by their unrighteousness, look at this, suppress the truth. Suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And then we see things that they began to do. Do you see what happens in Romans chapter 1? In Romans chapter 1, they exchange the truth of God for a lie. Internally, they create a disposition where they are saying my way and not God's way. Internally, they rebel against God. And when they rebel against God is when the darkness comes to their hearts and mind and they begin to act out. The essence of sin is not a thing we do. The essence of sin, from the biblical perspective, is an orientation to God as a rebel. That's what sin is. So how do you know when it shows up? Next question in our outline this morning, sin is identified by its expression. The expression of that rebellion is how we know that the rebellion is present. Typically, we speak of the disobedience that comes from rebellion as being sin. And it's true to a degree that that is sin, but it's probably better to think of those those acts of disobedience as being sinful. And rebellion itself being the sin. Again, Romans chapter 1 backs this up. Look, if you would please, at verse 28 of Romans 1. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, to, to, to acknowledge Him as ruler, 
God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Those things, I would argue from the biblical perspective, are the evidence of rebellion. They are therefore sinful, but the sin ultimately is me deciding in my heart that I'm going to do my thing and not do God's thing. This is why sin is a big deal. Sometimes I think we believe that God's just a prude. He just doesn't want us to lust as much. Or he, he wants us to be more truthful. And so then the idea that there is the reaction of his holiness called wrath against sin seems overblown. I mean, God would really pour out his wrath because I had a lustful thought? No, no. No. It's because we're rebels. We have rebelled against God. And that's why God's holiness is provoked with that word Paul uses. Wrath. So, the, the, the essence of sin is rebellion. And the expression of sin is disobedient. But then this. Sin is experienced by its effects. We experience sin by the effect of sin. And sin isolates us from God. It makes everything about pursuing a relationship with God, knowing what God wants, knowing His will. It makes everything not just harder, it makes it impossible. It makes it impossible. And as a result of that isolation, the first thing that comes, the effect, is shame. We've talked about that. When we recognize, when we're new, <laughs> when our heart is tender towards sin, and it happens, we try to hide it. We don't want anybody else to know. And we don't want God to know. We're just going gonna, gonna to hide. We, we feel the shame. But then as we get more used to that adrenaline hit of saying, I got my way, I'm doing my own thing, I'm going to live and captain my own ship and all that, we begin to lose our moral compass. And what we see happening in our world right now is a world being given over to that rebellion and has lost its moral compass to where those things that we know internally should not be right, we are declaring to be right. And every time I say that in the lily white suburbs of Johnson County, Kansas, everybody hears sex. Now, he's talking about sex. What's well, part of it? I mean, our sexual values are the result of us losing our moral compass of being given over. But that list that I read at the end of Romans chapter 1 includes sex, but it includes a whole lot of things that we're really, really super comfortable with. Gossip. I mean, social media has weaponized our ability to gossip about people. Weaponized our ability to have outbursts of anger. And all of these kinds of things. That's the result of losing a moral compass. You, you say, well, because of the, the nature of the world in which we live right now, I am obligated 
to say these things. I know it's wrong, but it's right because. So we say these horrible things about one another. Yesterday, a lady that many of you may have heard of, many of you may not, named Rachel Held Evans died. 37 year old, 37 years old, mother of two. She was a prolific writer and blogger that spoke deeply to the more progressive left side of Christianity. It would be very hard to find anything that I theologically agreed with Rachel Held Evans about. It would be very, very difficult. But, but the one thing we can agree on is that Jesus saves. And so I, I believe that to be absent from the body as a follower of Jesus, to be present with the Lord. And like all of us will be one day, she's before the Lord getting corrected for her mistakes. <laughs> and I'll get corrected too. None of us got all this figured out. But, but there were people on social media yesterday in the name of God saying awful things about this, this woman who didn't line up with her theology. Justified. Because she didn't agree with them, lost their moral compass. That's sin. That's sin. And if this is where all of this ended, boy, what a rotten story this thing's going to be. I mean, if, if, if you end at the end of Genesis 3, there's no hope. And if you use Romans 1 as kind of an interpretation of Genesis 1 through 3, there's really no hope. In fact, there's stark fear. There's stark fear. You recognize that God's going to do something about mankind's sin. But here's what we don't get. This is the plot twist. We assume we know what he's going to do at the end of Genesis 3 and at the end of Romans 1 about sin. Fail to see that he's going to take care of it himself. There's a hint of it in Genesis 3.15. You've heard me talk about this before. Where God speaking to the snake is kind of adding something past the snake, speaking to the Satan, the adversary that inhabited him. And he says, there will come a day where an offspring of the woman will crush your head, where you'll be ultimately defeated. You've heard me say this. Theologians have a term for 315. It's proto-evangelium, first good news. It's the first good news. It's the first gospel proclamation where we are told that God is going to do something. We don't know what, but God's going to do something. And what he did was provide Jesus Christ. And all that wrath that's talked about in Romans chapter 1 was taken by him to its last drop. So when I bring myself to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, there's nothing left of the wrath of God for me. None whatsoever. God will discipline me lovingly for my sin, but there's zero wrath because Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe. And so as a result of what Jesus has done, I am free to live life as I was meant to live it, to glorify and honor God. That's what I am given because of Jesus. What we don't understand at the end of Genesis chapter 3 is God is going to take care of it himself. And that wrath is actually turned back on himself. 
And he absolves it himself so that we could live. And so my challenge to you today is to really understand how big a deal sin is. It's rebellion against God. But more than that, I want you to understand what a big deal salvation is and how Eden can be restored in your heart, that isolation from God can be erased because of what Christ Jesus has done. That is what the Bible is about. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, please. Heads bowed and eyes closed.